Almost since its birth, people have been trying to figure out how information flows in digital media. Some have described the flow as viral in nature, while others have used the concept of spreadability to make sense of the way people share material online. Among those trying to make sense of, in particular, Web 2.0 are journalists. Reporters have been grappling with such issues as verification and sourcing online, as well as trying to figure out how to capitalize on new media to reach a broader audience. The intersection of new technology, statistics, and journalism is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, John Baylor, Chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, former Chair of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Mark Hansen, a professor of journalism at Columbia University and the director of the David and Helen Gurley Brown Institute for Media Innovation. Mark, thanks so much for being here. Uh, thank you. Before we start talking about the work you've been doing at Columbia, could you just explain briefly how someone who studied math and stats winds up in a journalism program teaching? <laughs> oh, that's a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I, but the, the short version is, I, I, uh, so I went to Berkeley, and I was fortunate enough to uh, get a summer internship at Bell Laboratories. That secured me a place at Bell Labs after I graduated. Um, somewhere along the line, Bell Labs shifted from AT&T to Lucent mm-hmm. as a parent company. Lucent stock soared. Someone got the bright idea that with all this I don't know, newfound freedom that comes from a soaring stock price, uh, we can relive some of the glory days of the, of the labs. And so there was a, uh, a revival of something called EAT, the Experiments in Art and Technology, which paired, in, it started in the, it was originally launched in the 60s, and it um, paired artists in New York with um, researchers at Bell Labs. They revived it in the, in the 90s, uh, late 90s, um, and I was one of the researchers who participated. Uh, I met a sound artist, Ben Rubin. Uh, we uh, went on to collaborate uh, and produce uh, well, a number of works like the lobby art for the New York Times building, the mm. lobby art for the, wow. uh, for the public theater. Um, we have a, uh, a piece in the 9-11 Memorial Museum. Like We, we ended up like building lots of, of um uh, art installations that draw on live feeds of data in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, sort of one step led to another. Uh, I took my sabbatical from UCLA. Uh, oh, actually, I left Bell Labs, got a job at UCLA, um, uh, took my sabbatical at the New York Times uh, R&D lab. Uh, people I met because we were installing the piece in the lobby. And... Uh, and uh, one thing led to another, and there was a job here at Columbia leading this institute that pairs technology and, and uh, story in some way. And um, the media art that I'd been doing was close enough to what they were looking for, and they gave me a, tr- they gave me a shot. Very what, good. What a cool history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that is awesome. So, so what, what is done at the New York Times R&D Lab? Well, so at the time, so there have been two incarnations of it now, or at least two that I know about. At the time, um, it was its mandate was to look five to ten years out for how we would be um, how we would be accessing content in the New York Times content, 
and it was kind of a uh, half half research lab, half uh, like show and tell space. So you know, we would show off some of the things we would get. You know, like one of Microsoft's touch tables, or uh, uh, there was like a range of of uh, mobile devices at various times, trying to see what times content could look like. And basically, the group was was built of designers and technologists who were thinking really hard about about where uh, media publication was going. Um, that effort uh, ended a couple years ago, and they now have a new uh, R&D lab that is situated a little more closely to the, to the newsroom. Mm -hmm. um, they've been, we've been working with them in various things uh, uh, for everything from sort of um, voice interfaces to, um, to uh, one of our projects um, they've been experimenting with, one of the projects at the labs. So they're a, a really collaborative group, but the difference between the two labs is that one is really close to the newsroom, the new one, and or it seems to be, and the other one was a little bit farther away, and both very intentional in their design, both doing sort of different things, um, and both very interesting to watch. Uh, in one of your uh, in one of your talks, I watched Mark, and this is a, a program called Stats and Stories. You talk about the narrative power of data. Can you talk a little bit about what what that is and how you think about that? Yeah, I, I actually, usually in my talks, <laughs> since I since there's chunks of them that get repeated on a se season to season, usually the narrative <laughs> power of data is is actually a quote from Pulitzer. So yes, Pulitzer, uh, Pulitzer Prizes, the founder of our school, in 1904 wrote about um, what he wanted his College of Journalism to teach. And he included statistics as something that should be taught amongst like law and history and other subjects that we, that okay. we still teach. Um, and when Pulitzer wrote about teaching statistics, he said, and I'm not going to get the quote right because I don't have it in front of me, but basically the idea was that in statistics you can find the truth, and that's what he was obviously committed to, but then mm -hmm. also... Um, uh, uh, humor, uh, 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 romance, uh, fascinating revelations of all kinds, he said. So he's thinking of data as being an exceptionally expressive uh, medium. And this is, mind you, 1904, wow. right? So 1904, I believe, Gossett had just gotten to the brewery. Um, Fisher <laughs> was like 12 or something. Yeah. Um, so statistics wasn't what, what we think of statistics as being. And so he, and, and, and to be fair, he's probably describing what's, uh, you know, the kind of sort of verbal slippage that's happened now. People talk about data, and they don't really mean statistics, um, mm -hmm. or, or they do, it because, but they use the word data because they're kind of afraid of the word statistics or something <laughs> like that. And, um, and so I think, I think the way he spoke about, about, about statistics, we, we often see people talking about data today. Um, but the, the idea is that, is that um, as, as more and more of our lives are mediated by computers, mediated by computation, data, code, algorithms, um, there, there is a, a, a need on the part of journalists as the explainers of last resort to be able to interrogate those systems and to ask basic questions because these systems pool together and form systems of power mm -hmm. and journalists are here to, to hold power to account. So in many ways, my job here in terms of thinking about sort of narrative potential is, 
you know, what, what, what's going on with these systems? How do we report on them? Um, how do we, as I said, hold power to account um, when it's entirely virtual? Mark, as someone who went through a journalism program in undergrad and in graduate program and had to take statistics classes and uh, being the stereotypical journalism student who was terrified of statistics and math, how do you get journalism students to sort of let go of fear they may have of dealing with data and statistics to sort of dig into the stories that sort of sit in it? Um, that's a good question. So first of all, the the fear, no offense to John, because I'm sure he's a wonderful teacher. <laughs> fear is probably real because oftentimes we don't teach statistics very well. And it's not really a function of well-meaning instructors. It's a function of the standard narrative that's taught in an introductory stat class. Mm-hmm. If you look at an introductory stat class, it's kind of a race to the t-test with a little bit of regression sprinkled at the back. And it takes the form basically of the proof that you would have followed to establish the t-test, right? I mean, you wander through probability for a while. Um, Maybe you have some data graphics at the beginning, like data everywhere is chapter one. And then there's (laughs) a grind into probability. And then eventually the data come back, but they're so abstracted. It's in the form of hypothesis testing and so on. And it just doesn't, you just sort of lose it very quickly. And so it's understandable that people are kind of turned off by it or could be um, given the standard narratives that they had they had sort of uh, been exposed to. And I know it's heresy and I apologize. Should we we let John defend? No, no, this is. Wait a minute. Wait a minute here. Hold on. Hold on. No, we I mean, I I I don't think it's heretical. I mean, I think that that in fact, we've we we've you would see a reboot in the way an introductory class would appear now versus. You know, going t- taking your time machine back twenty years and looking at it. Mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, ab- absolutely. I think that there's there's real there's real attempt to 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 change things. So, but I think that there's a difference when you teach. There's a real difference between data analysis and data journalism, mm-hmm. as I see. Data analysis often, and this maybe goes back to your narrative potential uh, question. And you know, I apologize if I'm never if I'm not quite answering these questions right. I spent the morning in the dentist chair, so. Um, <laughs> My face is numb, clear up to the tip of my nose, which is a disturbing feeling. But, well, um, we, we hope this is less painful than a dentist visit. Yeah, uh, well, I'll tell you at the end so, um, uh, when I get out of the chair. So the um, the difference, to, as I see it, between data analysis and data journalism is that oftentimes data analysis generates stories um, from a data set about a data set as a data set. Um, whereas data journalism always links that data back to its origin, always at, links that data back to some fundamental question. There's also a real difference in terms of the agency that the person performing the analysis feels they have. In, 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 you know, we, as soon as I arrived at the J School, I was told that journalism is not really an academic field. It's more of a habit of mind. It's a way of, of asking questions about the world, looking around and saying, why is this like this? Why is this like that? And a lot of the teaching that we've been doing with statistics around like computation and code and algorithm and so on, that's, that's providing students with the capacity to ask those questions of virtual things, of, mm-hmm. of, of, of algorithms, of, of, uh, of uh, predictive policing scoring or, or parole scoring or whatever it might be, right? Let's start to ask those questions, not uh, you know, of the, you know, the, the physical world that I can see around me, but of the virtual world that's controlling things. 
And that curiosity, that agency to ask questions really does fundamentally change the way um, you teach uh, uh, you teach data analysis or you teach looking at data rather, you teach um, thinking about data and, and it, it establishes a kind of different bar, I think. So, and one last thing I would add, uh, last year, uh, uh, by uh, uh, about half of the class, from what I understand, um, had made a request to our Dean of Academic Affairs, um, and I should give you a scale. We have 200 or so students in our MS program, uh, made a request for some kind of statistics training uh, as part of the program. Um, so I offered something called statistics breakfasts. Um, they were seven to nine in the morning on a Monday. Um, there were bagels, but still it was seven to nine in the morning on a Monday. Uh, and we had like 45 students showing up every week for wow. I think five or six weeks um, to learn um, on their own, no credit, no nothing, just showing up because they wanted to learn something about statistics and about how that functioned, about how knowledge about the world was created through data. Mm -hmm. And I think that says something about a sea change in the understanding that our students have about how important Yeah, I agree. You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington with Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor and Media, Journalism, and Films Richard Campbell. Today, we're talking journalism and tech with Columbia University's Mark Hansen. Mark, I want to ask you a question about something you worked on at New York Times called Cascade. You were involved in the creation of that, yes? Yep. Yeah. So I, I do social media research, uh, and I went to grad school at IU, um, where they've been doing some interesting stuff, tracking Twitter data. And so my question for you is, I was looking at Cascade and the way you were tracking, the way people share things. Well, my question always goes back to, you can track how people share information online, but how can you understand whether it's meaningful sharing is kind of where I always go to. So like if you're a news organization, and you're trying to track how your story is spread, how can you figure out if there's meaning behind it, or if it's just sort of like a, a reaction and not real engagement. Um, well, that seems to be that seems to be the big question uh, <laughs> in engagement statistics, um, uh, because it's not just it's not just the like or the share, but it's also you know the page view or the click through right. or any of these other metrics. And so there's a real attempt to see. Um, uh, take these somewhat standard metrics and figure out um, can you uh, can you learn a, bit, a little bit more? Can you engineer the system so that you see how far down people read? Uh, you know how how you know do they go to the next going to the next page is an easy thing because that's in the, in the in the access logs. But like, can you how far down on the page? How fast are they reading? Right. Remember a, a project at, at Cornell Tech which was looking at those kinds of statistics, and I think Chadwick gives you some statistics like these as well. So there's a there's a kind of open uh, open research question about how best to characterize um, what engagement actually what engagement actually means and what you're getting from the statistics, and I think there's uh, one of the things that I'm hoping by injecting a little more uh, a little more questioning spirit into the statistical side of things in our journalists is to ask well. You know, our our uh, our newsroom gives us these statistics. Uh, what else could we know? Yeah. Right. What else do we know about about how we're interacting with our with our audience? And I should say, when I first started at the at the New York Times R and D lab, 
there was a real resistance on the part of the newsroom um, to, to, to show any kind of usage statistics at all to the reporters. I think they, huh. they thought that it might lead to pandering or something like uh. that. But with Twitter and, and you know, reporters becoming, becoming um, more uh, sort of prominent in their own right, it's impossible for them not to know that a particular story is hit. Yeah. Right, that a particular story went went viral. So I think, I I mean this this is sort of dodging your question, but I think I think it's okay, there's, you can dodge there's, it. <laughs> well, no, no, but I mean I think I think there's there's real uh, a lot of work around what uh, what sort of meaningful statistics can be extracted and um, and you know what does that say about engagement? And I will tell you that with with Cascade, we saw a lot of really interesting sort of communities that mm -hmm. built up. So. Uh, uh, one of my collaborators, Jeff Thorpe, who was responsible for the really beautiful graphics. I mean, really beautiful. Yeah, no, those were uh, amazing. Had noticed uh, uh, a network of rabbis that would consistently share religion stories uh, amongst themselves. And so there are these interesting communities that build up that I think become important as well. And so it might not be just the direct statistics, like how long or was it alike, but can you think about the communities where things sort of work their way through. And, you know, thinking about that is, you know, is a difficult, it can be difficult because it's, you know, lots of small scale things that accumulate to the kind of sea of activity that you, that you perceive. But um, anyway, the, the, the tool like Cascade lets you drill down and sort of have those quiet moments and see those things. And I don't know, I, I'm not quite sure what that would amount to for a, for a marketing person. That's certainly not my side of the in the church and state divide, I was always on the church part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, sort of a, a natural follow-up to this, the, to consider the social media, um, whether or not something is, is their, their real posts. And I, I know some of the cool work that I've, I've heard you, you speak about is the identification of bots and, and other, you know, artificial entities living in the social media space and maybe looking at, at kind of what's what likes are, are are starting from who's who is actually posting these these kind of comments and these likes so can can you talk a little bit about the the story in which you investigated this the, you and your class investigated uh, these artificial entities on social media and let's yeah. congr let's congratulate you too for your front page byline in the new york <laughs> times so that's A1 on a Sunday, let that's me tell right. you. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> we that, know. That's hitting it out of the park. <laughs> and in fact, there, there was a funny story about that because um, uh, my collaborators, uh, Gabe Dance and Nick Compassori and Rich Harris, who are so amazing at yeah. the Times, um, I, you know, they were a little bit dodgy about 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 when it was coming out. It was coming out this weekend. Um, the, the thing appeared online first, and it, I was actually giving a talk at Cornell Tech to a group of high school teachers, and someone said, uh, are you the same Mark Hansen that has this, like, thing on the Times homepage now? <laughs> Sorry, but I was like, holy, and then, and then I, you know, I ran and got the Saturday paper, and of course it wasn't there. And then I went to the bodega Sunday and picked up from the stack and I sort of went through every single section and I didn't see it. And I was like, damn. And I throw it back in the pile <laughs> and catches my eye in the corner. I'm like, oh no, we're on the front. <laughs> That's great. Oh, that cool. was cool. Yeah. But I think uh, just to back up half a second, the question that you ask about authenticity, right? I think is fundamentally what it comes down to, and how can you tell, mm -hmm. you know, on uh, in social media whether whether this is an authentic news site, whether this is an authentic um, 
uh, an authentic, like a, a real person who's 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 posting, who's just followed you. Um, uh, the news stories that you're getting, we talk about fake news. There's questions of authenticity and 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 factualness. Like I think these are are fundamental questions that that we're that we're grappling with as a society, not just journalism, but as a society. And I think. I, I, you know, lots and lots of, of sort of tech work is being proposed. Can we automatically identify fake news? Can we do this and that? And mm-hmm. I, I don't quite know what the solution is, but 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 what we're trying to do is like chip off little pieces of it, right? So can we understand little pieces of what's there and, and maybe help the public um, make better uh, make better judgments and not necessarily pass everything off to some you know uh, AI system in the sky. So what what we did in my class, it's a computational journalism class, um, and uh, and we assume that the students don't know anything about computation, um, and so we teach them some Python, uh, uh, and um, uh, two years ago, uh, because of all the all the sort of news around the 2016 election, we themed it uh, on what we what we had we borrowed the term computational propaganda uh. and tried to get the journalists to ask questions about what does trending mean um how does something trend what does twitter say about when something trends or not um here are two million tweets from the inauguration uh can you tell what was trending at any given moment like you try it um and one of the things we were interested in was influence and mm-hmm. and uh, how voice spreads. So we um, we got an account on Twitter, didn't have any followers. All right, what are we going to do? So we Googled uh, how do we have influence on Twitter? <laughs> and <laughs> the first thing that came up was this company called Davumi who said mm-hmm. we could get you lots of followers really fast. And we thought, well, that's kind of cool. Um, so we bought some followers, uh, 2,500 or so, and they looked kind of amazing, right? They looked like real people. The All the pictures matched up. So if there was like, you know, a teenage, a teenage kid, um, you know, standing with skis in his biopic, and then maybe the pic behind him, you know, the long, the rectangular one is was... Uh, you know, of a longer one of him going down the slopes, and then there's a link to a Facebook account with, with him and all of his friends skiing, and it, it just all looked perfect, right? So I thought, well, these are real people, and because they passed my authenticity test, and I thought, well, what's the economics here? Because we paid pennies for this person to follow us. Why would they do that? And we haven't even tweeted from this account. So <laughs> how, you know, why would someone? What? How, I didn't get it. Um, and then we noticed, it took an embarrassingly long time, but we noticed that um, aspects of the of the person's account name, the login name, had changed. So uh, lowercase i's become lowercase l's, zeros are replaced with, uh, with o's or vice versa. Mm. Uh, single underscore in a name became a double underscore. Mm. Um, and so basically what someone had done was create a bunch of bots from real accounts. Wow. So they cloned all the data, grabbed all the pictures, grabbed all the text, created a new account with a slightly altered name, and now use that to programmatically follow or do whatever it is people bought um, the bots to do. Um, so in this case, 2,500 of them followed us. And so then the next question is, well, who else do these bots follow? 
So this was an opportunity to teach a little network analysis. So we scaled up and down the network and found tens of thousands of these accounts um, and found lots of people who shared uh, many of our bots, like Hillary Rosen, the CNN commentator, um, had 2,400 of our 2,500 oh, bots my. among her followers, which seemed suspicious. <laughs> um, so we uh, 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 so we got this long list. We found the bots that had the tells. And then at that point, we said, all right, we got to make something out of this. So I had my students formulate it to a pitch. We brought it to Gabe Dance, who's the deputy deputy investigations editor at the Times, um, uh, gave him the whole story. Our students had found an example of some stolen identities where those identities were minors. And now those minors or their doppelgangers are retweeting really ridiculously hardcore porn. Um, and you know, for what is often an abstract idea, you know, Russian hordes of Russian bots at the borders. Like, what does that look like? What does that mean? Um, miners tweeting porn. That was a way in to talk about to talk about you know the influence economy and what it might mean. Yeah. And the impact of that story has been incredible. Um, the I, I won't bore you with with steps along the way, but the the latest was a couple months ago. Twitter killed off tens of millions of accounts mm -hmm. and cited our story mm -hmm. as as the as the reason. And so. Again, that that curiosity and taking the data and weaving the stats into a story, statistics into a story, and the graphics and the whole thing coming together—that's like that's the best that I can think of in terms of data journalism, right? That's a that's the thing that I wish we could teach more of in statistics. Um, uh, teach more, like you know, some of that basic curiosity and agency to follow a story all the way through. So tw Twitter estimates, you know, I saw this in a business law blog somewhere that they have 15% of its uh, accounts are automated. And I think Facebook now says that about 60 million of its users are, are fake. Is that sound about right? Do we know actually, uh, do we have any sense of how accurate those estimates from those companies are? So, um, so let me put that back on you. How would we figure that out, right? So would we would we somehow form a sample and then have a peek? Like I, I think I think some of these questions. Let, let me step back a second. When our uh, article came out, the day after, almost all of those accounts, the tens of thousands that we saw, that we found that were doppelgangers, right? That were you know had stolen someone's identity. Almost all of them disappeared in a heartbeat. Oh wow! Right? Uh, yeah. Which which means that Twitter. I mean, I, I I don't know, but it just seems unlikely to me that Twitter didn't have a sense of what was going on there. Mm -hmm. So so they they you know were suspended or 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 disappeared, <laughs> um, okay. and so uh, uh, so the, I think you know, and even on Hacker News, there was like. A kind of a kind of uh, the kind of response we got from Hacker News was like, you know, Twitter has Twitter, Facebook, these places have the best engineers in the world, and it took a group of journalists to do this, which <laughs> I, I kind of found a little insulting because the whole point of this is to teach journalists to do this. But right. I, I would let that go. <laughs> but I mean, they they know full well. I feel like they have the information, like they see the whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. They see they see the the patterns uh, of people joining, the timing of it, um, the ways in which things are used. 
Um, so, you know, they're in a position to, uh, I think, you know, get rid of at least the most egregious bots. And I think, I think they spend a lot of time doing that. According to the company, they spend a lot of time doing that. And if we take that at face value, and I don't know that we should, but if we do, you know, Twitter would be a whole lot messier if they weren't doing what they were doing. Yeah. But I, I'll tell you this, and this is where I was going with the first question, um, or my first line of questioning, to, it was like, let's take a sample and let's see which accounts are bots and which aren't, right? Sometimes it's really hard to tell mm -hmm. because um, in this, in these sort of authenticity questions, um, where you're deciding if something's fake or not, you're, you're you're inevitably led, and then this is my my own opinion, but you're inevitably led to a kind of arms race. So someone builds a detector mm -hmm. that says this is what something fake looks like. The people who are making that fake thing go, oh. Well, uh, part of the problem with our bots, or at least in the detector software, uh, they seem to be like killing off our our uh, accounts that um, tweet constantly. So let's let's make the bots go to sleep, and let's make them tweet a less frequent, a little less frequently on the weekends. Mm -hmm. And and then a whole class of bots get through and aren't detected until the owner of the detector detector says, "Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That rule isn't working anymore. Let's retrain." And then and so you're kind of going back and forth, right? Mm -hmm. There's a and even like these attempts at like uh, establishing uh, credibility indices have to be a little bit for news sources and, and news uh, news stories to try to combat fake news. Have to be a little careful that we don't get end up in an arms race and end up with really good fake news, mm -hmm. right? Like really well produced. So it's a hard, sometimes it can be a hard question because, yeah. and then I'm going to, I'm going to shut up about this, but, but <laughs> it, it, the, the, the question sort of in terms of influence on, on social media is probably less about rallying purely automated systems, right? It's probably less about bots than more broadly about coordinated activity. And that through coordination, one can gain an outsized voice on these platforms. Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's invoking a horde of, of bots of some kind to repeat your or retweet your content. Sometimes it's giving your account over to a third party who will tweet like crazy their message. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it's just a group of people organizing on some other platform and saying, all right, go, and then tweeting a whole lot on a, on a particular topic. Yeah. Um, so it, it's something about the design of these systems that we have to question. Mm -hmm. um, and it's not necessarily just the kind of authenticity um, or the sort of bot thing that comes up. I, and I don't know that that directly answers your question <laughs> because I don't know great. how many bots there are on Twitter. So I thought I would yes. just kind of waffle on about the difficulties <laughs> no, no. of telling a bot it's, or not. It's complicated. I hope that would satisfy you. That's an important right. skill to have in answering questions. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Uh, so I, just one last question for you. I mean, we're, we're talking about some really outs outstanding and interesting work in data journalism. You know, thinking about our about students and who might want to be preparing for this, I, sort of this a, a simple two-part question. What, what does a, a stat or math science student need to know to be able to move into this space and work here? And what does a journalism student, someone who's majoring in journalism, need to know to move into the kind of work that, that you're describing? So... Um, I'll start with the second first because I'm in a school of journalism and I teach journalists. Um, uh, I think that um, that what they need to know 
there's some there's some basic skills that I think uh, a student needs to know. Some probably some basic coding skills. Um, you know, being able to to access data from an API, um, uh, being able to um, you know to do some basic computations. Inevitably, journalists still end up for whatever reason doing a lot of web scraping. So mm -hmm. some of those skills come in handy. Um, some basic understanding of statistics. Um, uh, I think I think there's going to be gradations of of statistic statistical analysis in newsrooms. Um, if if you look at if you if you assume that maybe statistical modeling goes the way that data visualization went, mm -hmm. in that for a long time I remember Tufty and others like mocking the New York Times for their graphics, <laughs> but, but now I feel like they're leading the pack. Right, yeah, journalists yeah. are inventing lots of tools for visualization that are helping uh, uh, up the public's capacity for understanding visual stories um, or, or data analysis told through visual means. Um, and, so, and so in a newsroom, you have people who will make a bar chart, and then you have people who will make this phen phenomenal sort of interactive map of whatever. Um, uh, and so you'll have kind of a range, I think, in the same way of people who will quote a percentage or, you know, maybe, uh, you know, consult the fact finder for the census, uh, American fact finder, and, and quote some number. Um, and then those who will be doing full on, um, you know, regression analysis of various kinds or machine learning pieces of various kinds. So I think, I think we'll start to see much, much more on the high end. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so so a, a journalism student kind of needs to figure out where they're going to fit in that ecosystem and how they, they move, right, and how they sort of gain their skills and so on. So there's some, there's some basic tools that, that we can start them with. You know, knowing a little Python helps. Um, understanding how the web works helps. Um, uh, and, you know, I think the most important thing is having a story and someone to guide you or help you um, that'll, that'll bring you through. Mm -hmm. um, uh, does that answer on the journalism side? Yep. yep. Okay. Then on, I wasn't interrupted, so it means I'm, I'm not waffling on too badly. And then the, <laughs> the, the second, uh, for the statistics side, I got to say what it really comes down to is a sense of agency. I mentioned this before, but like recognizing that the tools that you are learning can provide you ridiculously powerful insights into the ways in which your neighborhood, your community, your city, your state, your the country functions, right? And having the capacity to say, you know, wait, like that curiosity to ask a question, figure out what data might be interesting to address that question and take it on. I think, you know, the way I was taught it was kind of dirty for a statistician to collect their own data, right? You were, I was sort of taught to be, <laughs> I was sort of taught to like, you know, we're consultants, right? Or we're, you know, we're in some way producing statistics that other people will interpret. There's always a subject area expert that comes along with, with you, right? And, and maybe again, John teaches this differently and, and, and then I apologize, but <laughs> but I, my training didn't provide me with a lot of agency, and I think. Nor mine. Mm -hmm. 
and I think that that it's a shame, right? In fact, even even the the Royal Statistical Society has taken down the the you know the from their logo has taken down the ribbon around the stand of wheat. I don't know if you remember, but their their logo is a, is a stand of wheat, and the ribbon around it was a had a, a Latin phrase that said to be threshed out by others. Right? Oh. So we were supposed <laughs> to be just like producing stuff and being very objective and what have you. And I, and I'm not suggesting ditching the objectivity, but I am suggesting a sense of agency and a recognition that the tools that we are learning and the frameworks that we know and the things that we do well and are taught are powerful and can be used to question power in society if we just open our eyes and look around, right? The stories are there, the, the things are there, and, and, that, and that a statistician getting involved and joining a journalistic institution um, is as valid uh, uh, a uh, career path as anything there is now, and that they can have significant impact on helping, again, hold power to account, to question why things are the way they are. And I cannot encourage you know, students enough to get, to, to really grab onto that opportunity because what they're being taught is powerful, is really powerful. Well, Mark, thank you so much for being here. That's all the time we have for today. But before you go, I do want to ask if this was less painful than the dentist. Um, I'll give it a second. <laughs> we don't like that. This was fun. And I, I apologize if I waffled a little bit. Oh, no. No, you're great. You're great. Thank you again Faculty so much. Faculty members, that's what happened. So. Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, it is. Thank you. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter or iTunes. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.